So we've started a new sermon series called Under Construction. Uh, just like our church is under construction, if you look to the south end, I'm making the case that all of our lives as Christians are also under construction. And the goal for us is to become more like Jesus Christ in our words and in our actions. But it's not easy because we all fall short. And life is full of stress and pressure and disappointment. We all do and we all say things that we're not proud of, but we have to keep trying. We have to keep working on it. We have to do the important work of spiritual formation and personal growth. Uh, Jesus raises the question in the Sermon on the Mount, why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye but fail to recognize the log in your own eye? First, he says, take the log out of your own eye, and then you can see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. And this is a challenge for everybody, for every single one of us, because it's much easier to point out what's wrong with everybody else than to look into the mirror and to identify the things that we need to work on as Christians. A number of years ago, Arthur Brooks, who was, uh, he was the head of the American Enterprise Institute, he now teaches at the Harvard Kennedy School, but he gave a TED Talk that you can find on YouTube that was called The Secret to Happiness. We actually watched it in our staff meeting this week. And in that talk, he basically argues that 48% of happiness in life is genetic, and the other half is how your life plays out, which clearly involves the decisions that you make uh, and the things that happen to you. And in that talk, he argues that research has found that, generally speaking, women are much happier than men. He says single women are happier than single men. Married women are happier than married men. Widowed women are apparently way happier than widowed men. I don't understand that. But he says, when it comes to happiness, our set point, genetics plays a big role in that. But when it comes to the other 50%, Arthur Brooks argues that there are four basic factors that we need to focus on and invest in uh, if we want to be happy and fulfilled in life. And what are those? He says, it's your faith, it's your family, it's your community, and it's meaningful work. So Arthur Brooks says that if we're wise, we will try to focus our lives, invest our lives in these four things. But I would argue that when it comes to faith, many people don't grow in their faith and in their spiritual life because they don't understand themselves. They don't have a starting point for spiritual growth. And so last week I, I told you about the Enneagram. I gave you an overview of the Enneagram, which is an ancient personality typing system. Uh, and I think it's one of the best tools for determining our starting point for spiritual growth, self-discovery. And every number on the Enneagram has a core sin. We talked about that. For ones, the perfectionist, it's anger. For twos, the helper, it's pride. For threes, the achiever, it's deceit. For fours, the individualist, it's envy. For fives, it's avarice. For sixes, it's fear. For sevens, it's gluttony. For eights, it's lust for control. And for nines, the peacemakers, it's sloth or laziness. Now in this small book that I'm recommending to go along with this sermon series by A.J. Sherrill, um, he, he talks about how we can connect the Enneagram with discipleship, with following Christ. And he says, the first step towards wholeness is recognizing the fact that all are broken and fragmented, needing to be placed into a cohesive whole in order to reclaim the identity that God has for all of humanity through grace. 
Every single one of us has things in our lives that we wish were different, things in our lives that we might call broken or strained or fragile, tendencies that we have that we wish we didn't have. But we have to learn to live with those but always strive to do better. And that's why we're saying that all of our lives as Christians are under construction. Now, when you study the Enneagram, what you find is that it can be divided into three triads or three groups of three. So the first triad they call the gut triad, which is eight, nines, and ones. And these folks in life uh, respond and see life at a gut level. This triad deals with anger. Eights express anger, nines forget anger, and ones internalize it and it turns into resentment. The second triad is called the feeling or the heart triad. These individuals are driven by their feelings. They see and experience life through their feelings. Twos focus outwardly on the feelings of others. Threes have trouble recognizing their own feelings and the feelings of others. And fours concentrate their attention inwardly on their own feelings. This triad deals with shame. And the third triad is the thinking triad. These are the folks that see and experience life through the head, intellectually, cerebrally, uh, and, and their main challenge is fear. Fives externalize fear, sixes internalize fear, and sevens tend to forget about fear. These numbers basically take the world in through their mind, and they tend to think and plan carefully before they act. So this morning, what I'd like to talk to you about in this series is how do we face, how do we confront anger, shame, and fear? Because these are three emotions that we all deal with, and, and, and we can pick the one that we deal with the most, perhaps based on our number, but we all deal with each of these emotions. So let's start with anger. Jesus says in Matthew 5, you've heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder. And whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you're angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So when you're offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. And first be reconciled to your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. It's very clear when you study the Bible that Jesus understood the danger of anger. He knew that if anger is not dealt with in a healthy manner, it can ruin relationships and it can become toxic very, very quickly. There is perhaps no more dangerous emotion in life than anger, especially when it goes unaddressed. There are a lot of angry people in the world. You see them on the road. You see them at the store. You see them at the bank. Sometimes you see them in the church. Paul writes to the Ephesians, So then putting away falsehood, let all of us speak the truth to our neighbors, for we are members of one another. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Some of you remember you were in premarital counseling that your minister or uh, priest told you, if you're having a fight with your spouse, try to settle it before you go to bed. Don't go to bed mad or, or angry. Uh, you might not sleep or you might not sleep well. Now, because I am an eight on the Enneagram, I recognize that anger is the main emotion that I have to face. So when it comes to my own spiritual journey, 
I have to find healthy ways to deal with it. Uh, when talking about eights on the Enneagram, Ian Cron says this, anger is their go-to emotion. It's so close to the surface that you can sometimes feel like it's radiating off of them like a space heater. <laughs> and because anger is so easy for them to access, an average eight can be a little too quick to the draw, firing off a few rounds at people without thinking about uh, what the consequences will be. But Cron argues that eights actually use anger as a defense mechanism. Many of the emotions that we turn to are simply part of our defense mechanism. It's a coping mechanism for how we deal with stress and threats and, 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 and painful situations. So for me and for the others that are on the gut triad, the eights, nines, and ones, we have to find healthy ways to think about anger. We have to acknowledge that anger is real and anger is there. Now, lest you leave church today and think, wow, the, the, the preacher at Woodmont has an anger problem. It's all about self-awareness. Each of these triads, it's about self-awareness and knowing what your tendencies are, knowing the things that you just need to be aware of so that you can be proactive in confronting them. Gary Chapman, who's the guy that wrote that famous book, The Five Love Languages, he also wrote uh, another book called Anger. And he says this, Anger is fed by feelings of disappointment and hurt, rejection and embarrassment. Anger pits you against the person, place, or thing that sparked the emotion. It is the opposite of the feeling of love. Love draws you towards the person, but anger sets you against the person. Anybody in the gut triad needs to focus on loving more, loving better. We also have to remember what Jesus taught, turn the other cheek, Go the extra mile. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. You know, I'm convinced that Jesus understood that it takes two to tango. And if one person turns away or doesn't engage, then guess what? There's not a fight. When we were at Disney World uh, for fall break, speaking of anger, um, we <laughs> went to Hollywood Studios uh, the last day. And we went with the kids to the uh, live show Frozen. And do you remember the now the Frozen 2 is coming out in a couple weeks, by the way, but do you remember the famous song from the first movie, Frozen? Because they sang it like three times. Let it go. People who deal with anger in life for whatever reason, even if it is justified, may just need to let it go. Let it go. Somebody once said that holding on to bitterness and anger is like drinking poison and waiting on somebody else to die. Second, topic this morning. Those in the feeling triad, the twos, the threes, and the fours, deal with shame. And shame has been defined before this way. A painful feeling of humiliation or distress caused by the consciousness of wrong or foolish behavior. Now, it's a little more challenging to find situations in scripture where Jesus directly deals with shame um, I think about the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. They bring this woman to Jesus and they say, this woman's been caught in adultery. The law says that she should be stoned to death. What should we do? What does Jesus do? He says, okay, um, uh, I understand that. So let, let the person here who is without sin throw the first stone at her. Jesus was brilliant. And they all looked around and they slowly dropped their stones and they all walked away. And then Jesus looks at the woman 
And he tells her that she's not condemned, and he tells her, now go and sin no more. He, he doesn't tell her that adultery is okay. He says, I don't condemn you, so go and sin no more. Change your ways. Learn from your mistakes. But you have been forgiven. Brene Brown is an academic who has done a lot of research and a lot of work on this subject of, of shame and vulnerability. Um, she sees this as being perhaps the main problem in our culture at large, and, and I think for a lot of people she's right, but all of her books are excellent. I'm reading her newest book called Dare to Lead, and it's very good. Um, but here are a few of the quotes by Brene Brown. Shame corrodes the very part of us that believes we are capable of change. You are imperfect. You are wired for struggle, but you are worthy of love and belonging. Vulnerability is the birthplace of love, belonging, joy, courage, empathy, and creativity. It is the source of hope and empathy and accountability and authenticity. If we want greater clarity in our purpose or deeper and more meaningful spiritual lives, then vulnerability is the path. She says, when we work from a place, I believe that says a place of vulnerability, that says I'm enough. And then we stop screaming and we start listening and we're kinder and gentler to the people around us, and we're kinder and gentler to ourselves. I think all the words that she writes about shame and vulnerability are, are, are real. Sometimes people are harder on themselves and fail to forgive themselves while other people have forgiven them, and they just need to move on in life and look to the future, look to the present, and look to the future. But shame is real for people in that second triad. Lastly this morning, fear. This is the primary emotion of fives, sixes, and sevens. And what's interesting, though, is that, that anger is directly tied to fear. Anger is often the response to fear. Jesus has a lot to say about fear. We did a whole sermon on this about three or four weeks ago. Uh, he says, do not be afraid. Why did you doubt? You have little faith. Don't worry about your life. He says, by worrying, can you add a single hour to your span of life? He's always telling the disciples, be not afraid, be not afraid, have faith, take heart, be courageous. Over and over again, we see that theme in the New Testament. But here's the deal. We worry about the things that we care the most about. We worry about our health and our family and our friendships and our jobs. If we didn't care about them, then we wouldn't worry about them. Think about that. But since we care about them, we think about them all the time, and we often worry about them. Uh, think about this. I don't worry that much about how your children are doing in school. Um, I hope they're doing well. I'm sure they are doing well. I worry more about how the Stauffer children are doing in school. Um, I don't worry that much about your 401k and whether it's doing well. I hope it is. I hope it's going up. But I think about uh, our own retirement plan and, and, and savings. Um, I hope everybody's is, is growing. But the, the bottom line is what I'm trying to say is that we worry about the things in life that we care the most about. There's a connection there. We worry about them because we care. And so there is this selfish element to fear and worry uh, but Jesus says, don't worry, don't fear. God will take care of you. But this is what I've discovered. Worry and anxiety levels 
are much higher in more affluent countries. We just had a group, like I said, get back last night from, from Guatemala, and the ministry we've been doing there for over a decade now, is, it's, it's unbelievable. Um, 275 families sponsored, uh, 28, soon to be 30 houses that have been built by Woodmont. But if you go to Guatemala, or if you talk to people that just went to Guatemala, they will tell you that the Guatemalan people who live in abject poverty don't worry like we do. Their faith is strong. Their families are tight. Their life is simple, and they trust in God to provide. So why do we, who have so much more, spend so much of our time and our energy and, and fear worrying about things? Why do we, who are blessed with so much more, worry that we don't measure up or that we don't have as much as the next person? One answer to that question is that we are often ungrateful. We are often ungrateful for the blessings that we do have because we live in a culture that tells us we always need more, more, more. So often we take for granted what we already have because we're focusing on what we want to get. When I got back from Guatemala a few years ago, and I want to go back soon and take my children, I preached a sermon that was called When Worlds Collide. And I got back on Saturday night and was basically writing the sermon you know, on the plane from the heart. But I look back this week to see what I said, and this is what I said. Going to a country like Guatemala makes you realize how blessed we, we are here, but how often we forget it. We wrestle with which restaurant to go to. They wrestle with simply having food. We wrestle with how big of a house to have and when to move. They just want to be protected from the weather. We wrestle with which school to send our children to they long for some type of education to break the cycle of poverty. We wrestle with getting new outfits for every season. They're happy to have socks and a warm coat. Two different worlds that are not that far apart geographically with totally different concerns and totally different realities. It's so easy for us to get so busy and so wrapped up in our own little worlds and in our own little problems, before we know it, we've come up with every excuse under the sun as to why we can't go serve and help other people. But yet God tells us to go and serve. God tells us to get out of our comfort zone, get out of Green Hills, quit thinking about yourself all the time, do what Jesus commands you to do, and then guess what? You might find out what it means to be saved. I don't mean that if you go to Guatemala or if you go on a mission trip that you'll just go to heaven one day when you die, but you'll quit thinking about yourself all the time and what you need and what you want. And if you go and you serve the least of these, the poor who are in desperate need, and if you meet them face to face, then you might just discover a joy that you never thought you could experience. And you might realize that focusing on the needs of other people can save you from your own misery. Amen.